Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Bruce McLean. We said you gotta be there, and I'm telling you, you had to be there. We're coming back from Vegas on Rugger Matrix USA, episode 10. We are in double figures. Juro is here. Eddie's here. Eddie O'Sullivan, fresh from Vegas. We're gonna hit all the hot topics, talk about the Sevens tournament, talk about all the great people we saw, and fire it up, and we're ready to rock. Welcome, Juro. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> That's a great intro. I am doing very well. Great to see you uh, survive the corporate jet travel and all the hard yards uh, that you had with Rob Holder there in Vegas, but it's over and done with. How was the weekend? I tell you, it was it was absolutely tremendous, and and it, and it did start on the corporate jet. It's very nice to be able to go to to an event with um with a five minute wait in the airport and free coffee as you as you board the plane, and then you get to arrive and you just walk and they have somebody who's there with a with waiting and ready to take you to your hotel as part of your uh, as part of your package. I was over the moon at the kindness of the Borg family from the uh, from the Bergen record in New Jersey and 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 Garth Wakeford who was uh, president of Montauk Rugby Club and uh, who who took out who took us out there and we, I'm very very grateful it was it made for a good trip I, I got to say that I, I was happy with the performance of the American team because going into the going into the into the thing they they had a pool with South Africa and Fiji so essentially the best that they were going to be able to do realistically was to come out of that and compete for the ball, which they did, and they won it. So I think I'm pretty happy with that. One of the things that I saw against Fiji in the opening game, they played quite well. And they were up 5 nothing at halftime. And it was kind of a weird thing. And they had a kick at goal from about eh, 40, 40, might have been 45 yards out. But there was only 20 seconds left in the half, and they're up 5 nothing. And Nessie Malifa, who was one of the kickers on the team, is is able to hit it from that distance. Now, there's two schools of thought: Do you run it and try to score and put them away? Do you, are you fearful if you if you shank the kick that you give the Fijians a chance to come back with with a lot of with a lot of real estate and and maybe be able to sh- to break a first tackle and go up seven to five? And the USA lost fourteen to twelve that game. And I you know I wonder whether what I would have done from from the coach's box. A coach's box. It certainly wasn't a coach's box. It was a box that had a lot more beer than the coach's had. Um, it was uh, fr- fr- from from my venue and Eddie's venue. It it was kind of one of those kind of one of those fifty fifty looks. Like the the go was it was just was it a little bit out of his range. But all in all, it was a great effort. And 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 Benny Brazil did some really good things. He's the uh, he's the crossover athlete, football player, track star. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leonard Peters did really well, and he's starting to showcase himself as as a much more much more talented and and able uh, ball player with the ball in hand and actually moving the ball. Um, Threaten Palamo played well. He plays at University of Utah, and he has been on the seventh circuit. And his family is big in the uh, is big in the sevens, and, and over the course of many years with San Francisco Golden Gate. So all in all, you look at it and you take on top of it players like Matt Hawkins, who had a huge tournament, and and and, and Paul Emmerich, who uh, who joined over from over Mac Palmer to to have a run with the sevens. And 
I, I, I got to say, I was pretty happy. And, and Zach Test, I, I didn't know that his dad was a rugby player. As you go, Eddie's going to speak about some of the Eagles that he had seen when he was coaching. But as you go down, you, you see all the older guys and, and all the people who really came out to the event. It was a wonderful thing. I, like Brian Vizard with the New York uh, U.S. Rugby Football Foundation, most people just know him as, a, as an announcer or a former on-back player, former captain of the Eagle. He... he um, he raised $12,000 or $14,000 with his golf tournament for the U.S. Rugby Football Foundation. Um, you know, and he's going to be using that money to help players with scholarships and help players with opportunities. A lot of times they send players to the Iran's Academy. They'll send people down to Australia for an opportunity to give people scholarships to go to universities. And so I, I think it, those kind of things are, uh, are really good now. There's some. There's been some issues that we've had on our. There's been some issues that we've had with, you know, Bob Tatham and some of the USA board stuff. And and I will say we are going to get to all of that, but we don't necessarily have exact, accurate. We, I, there's a lot of hearsay and a, and a lot of conjecture. I don't know what's exactly accurate about anything, but within the next week or so, USA Rugby is going to give us the rugby plan at least from the collegiate standpoint that they promised us by christmas and then there's going to be probably a little bit of activity in terms of what the board is doing they had some really strong positive meetings with the irb where i got kind of drunken details and and drunken details are useless (laughs) so we're going to try to get some of those some of those details a little bit more fleshed out and we'll be dealing with them on later shows so no we're not shirking anything we just don't want to talk about things we don't have anything really good to talk okay. about all right so it has certainly caused a, a lot of chat on the uh, comment section of the website and we encourage that in fact uh, it's been intelligent and uh, forthright debate and uh, particularly on the, uh, the the gambling side but uh, we will get into that later on as you said bruce better to have all the information in front of us rather than just gibbering for no reason now you mentioned his yeah. name about five minutes ago uh, now that you're finished i can introduce him eddie o'sullivan eagles head coach uh, eddie have you recovered from vegas yeah i'm good Joel. i got back uh, this afternoon um all in one piece and uh Spent a good bit of time with Bruce over the weekend, so my head is still ringing, as you can imagine. <laughs> and how was that uh, quote commentary or the coach's box on the weekend? <laughs> yeah, well, it was uh, the whole event was fantastic. I mean, I, I I've never been to sevens events before because I've always been busy at this time of year with with fifteens, and um, so it was a great opportunity for me. It's great to be at the American sevens because, uh, as as Bruce mentioned, I met up with a lot of guys that I, I coached with. My, number of years ago and a lot of the ex eagles were there um juan grobler shawnee allen brian hightower chris lippert tom phillips jack clark alatini Salah, you know bumping into guys everywhere i hadn't seen for years so it was fantastic the event itself was very well run it was it was you know really really good to be there great crowd and some very good rugby and I, and i'd like to say the same as bruce you know the eagles were in a very tough pool and i thought they had a fantastic game against uh, fiji and um, yeah, that kick was was one. You know, it's it's, it's easy to wise after the event, but had they knocked it through, it might have been a difference. But they had also had a try in that game disallowed. Um, referee and, and the touch should, should could have called it, and you know it would have been good to get the hometown call. It's a tight call, but I was talking to uh, Al Caravelli yesterday, and he said that they reviewed it on tape, and and, and the Eagles did score the try. So that would have been a huge win for them out of the blocks against Fiji. But um, Eddie, you know, now, Eddie, that, Eddie, on yeah. that because I. I remember we were standing next to each other when it happened. And and yeah. what it was is kind of a kick through Jiro. 
and two guys went down and dove on the ball and the end zone referee said no try 22 and i raised my hand straight away like try 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 and i said eddie if there's no tmo you have an upset at the home field of the team doing the upset you just give that try right away that's just a try and that, that was the way i saw it for, for entertainment value that's a try you don't you know and then to find out that we were robbed and not given a try. It'd be one thing if we robbed Fiji. It's another thing when Fiji robs us. You know, well, it, I mean, was a, uh, it would have been a great start to the tournament for the Eagles because they came out on fire. And, and they played really smart rugby. They held on to the football. I mean, I was watching the possession stakes in the first half. And basically, the Eagles kept the ball for the first four and a half minutes of the first half, which is a hell of an achievement. And then they... Uh, they scored and they got it back again pretty much immediately. I think Fiji had the ball for like 30 seconds in the first half. And that's good sevens play. I mean, even if you're not putting the ball in the end zone, if you've got it, they can score. And, and um, I think, you know, that was, was a great performance. And I was glad they, they came away with a trophy in the end. As Bruce said, they did as well as they could do in the circumstances. Um, but I, I'd also mention as well, the team that really, really impressed me this weekend uh, was Australia. Um, I just thought they were really slick, very well organized. And, I kind of have fancied them to go through, and they were very lucky against Samoa. They just lost by, by two points, a conversion to the touchline, beat them. Uh, I, I think that Australian team looks like a team that's going to do some business before the end of the season. Mm, that's been an ongoing source of frustration for many people in Australia, Eddie, that the uh, Sevens program hasn't been able to emulate uh, what the 15-man game can do. But there's been a hell of a lot of work, a lot of money poured into it, and many people ask the question why. But as you saw the weekend, uh, there are some positive signs. And I think overall, uh, Vegas is a great showcase for the for that form of the game. And, and obviously, you appearing for the first time, you really sounded like you enjoyed the day as a whole or the whole weekend. Yeah, it is. I mean... <laughs> It's a unique experience, Sevens, because it, it's so full on, you know, from from early in the morning to late in the evening, it's game after game after game. And, and the whole event as well, Ron, you've got the music and, it, you know, it, the crowd are in, in very much involved, are a huge part of it. So it is a very different event than a 15s game, which is, as you know, over basically two hours. Um, this is a day-long thing, but it, and it's the excitement of all the scoring and you've got new teams in the field every, every you know, 10 minutes. So it's a, it's a whole event, and, and I think... In terms of selling the game in America, you know, um, it's a huge plus because people will come to that and, and rugby is rugby for people who are starting out. To see that, they're going to be drawn back to rugby again in, in, in another way. Um, I thought that the, uh, the feedback I got on Friday night, I went to a function um, that, that was, that was uh, held by, by uh, the Las Vegas uh, people and a lot of companies that weren't involved this year in, in and you know, getting sponsorship behind it, realise they missed the boat this season, and they're already putting their hand up to want to be involved next year. So you know that was even further the ball kicked on 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 the Saturday morning. This was Friday night, so I think we'll see Vegas again. There was a slight issue with the width of the field, and probably didn't suit Fiji. But you know, at the end of the day, everyone's on the same field, so you know, I, I think they they were just going on with it. But overall, I think it was a fantastic event. Bruce, you mentioned the IRB before. Um, were the, were they impressed with the weekend? According to Peter Setcher, who is a USA board member, they were very impressed with the weekend and they had a really good time. And 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 I gotta say, in in fairness, I was I was extremely impressed. Actually, it exceeded my expectations by a long shot. Uh, I it started with the invitational event that they had outside for the teams. We got to see 
some reasonably good club sevens that that um, when when Belmont Shore beat Chicago, it looked like a real sevens game that really belonged in that kind of a tournament. I mean, obviously it's not an international standard, but it was a very good sevens game. And then there were some college games where one of the things that I noticed and one of the things that a lot of the people noticed was that there are tremendous athletes in college and, and, and some of them like, like Blaine Scully, Colin Hawley from, from, from Cal Berkeley, uh, Duncan Kelm from San Diego state. Uh, Utah has a fullback whose name escapes me 18 years old. He can run like the wind. There are some people that really seem like they can come up and, and, and have themselves or find themselves a place within the national team pool and not look foolish. Uh, this kid, Blaine Scully, he was able to go, up and catch high balls, jumping 30, 35 inches into the air. It was really tremendous. It looked like somebody who was playing for France. France actually uh, played in the Six Nations over the weekend too, and 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 they they had some tremendous skill and did some did some. Re- it was actually a very good game, barring the scoreline. It actually was a pretty well played game on both ends, and um. I got to say that I saw some of this and it, and it went from there. Then it went into the event with his 20,000 people each day going into the event. And it was a beautiful sunny day. The music, the, uh, the friendship, the camaraderie, everything there. I mean, it was outstanding. And I, and I almost say that did people miss the boat in not going? I'm so glad I went. It's not. I. I. It, it exceeded expectations by a long shot for me. From and you're a not rugby a. You're stands, not a, a social man. Stands. You're not a seven. No, man. no. Yeah. And we were talking about that off air, and we talk about it all the time because it wasn't necessarily about the sevens. It was about being there and being able to see everyone and being able to talk to everyone, being able to see people you haven't seen in years, being able to just hang out with people and. And just talk about rugby and talk about good things and talk about good times. And, and you know, like we met Tony Rennell. Holder and I went out to see Tony Rennell. And we were talking about the um, – we were talking about going to see we – were, we were going to talk about, like, what can we do to make rugby better? Tony Tony said that, you know, I'm up in Seattle and I'm high – I'm Kevin Swearing's an employee of mine and he's doing outstanding and I need to get more Eagles in my employee so that I can help these guys. He said that Microsoft CFO is a New Zealander. He's like, we have to tap into him. I can – you know, and, what, you know, you just start thinking and people who were just working around like Brian – Brian Vizard raised 12 grand and, and Chris Lippert did his thing to help Brian out with that. It was just, you know – Dan Payne and Matt Sherman were there hustling on the sidelines. Dave Hodges was doing every single thing to make the invitation. They didn't have to do any of this stuff. Matt Sherman's the Eagle back coach. Dan Payne's the Eagle, Eagle skills coach. Dave Hodges is the Eagle video and forwards coach. Like, they were running around doing things for nothing to make USA rugby better. And, and that was just what I saw through the whole weekend was just generation after generation of guys who made rugby better and then you start to see like the beginning of a culmination like yeah this is legitimate and not only that it's only going to get better this is like was, this is the bottom step of what can we can go up from but Bruce it was also good to, uh, that our major sponsors our new new sponsors we've got new, we've got a new sponsorship deal with uh, Canterbury and th- those people were in the event and also um, Emirates Airlines um, they were there and that was their first major event and they were kind of blown away by the whole thing you know the the, the, the whole atmosphere of it and, and, and how well it was run and and that sort of um, them seeing USA Rugby in that light is, is, is just all positive for, for a sponsor you know they see all the potential in it and uh, 
that was another side bar to the whole thing I thought was really important. And one of the things, like I was talking to, uh, I was talking to Ray Peterson, and I was talking to John Prismack about it, is that they have like monster truck shows, and they have all these different shows. The rugby crowd, although they are very generally very big people who consume a lot of alcohol and 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 buy a lot of food products out there, they're they're a very tame and peaceful crowd. They don't have any arrests. They don't have any problems. You know, there's nothing. There's no. Because it's it's kind of weird. There's no real rooting interest. One, like one of the best moments that I saw was when Japan Japan beat. Uh, oh no, is it China? Or, yeah, China or Japan? Japan beat Argentina and got a standing ovation. Twenty thousand people got up and paid tribute to what they did. It was amazing, and it was I that whole day it was like if like. Juro, you're an Australian, I'm an American. If America was playing Australia and Australia scores a great try, I get up and clap too. Hmm. If America scores a great try, you get up and clap too. You know, and that's what kind of event it is. And so when these people see that and they see that everybody's friends and that every, you know, really there's no true hardcore rooting interest. And, you know, I mean, obviously you want your team to win, but you're not going to. You know, you're not gonna slice your slice your throat like maybe if uh, Auburn lost to Alabama, you would do in college football or something. <laughs> you know, this this is like that kind of mm. event that was it was it was it was outstanding, and and like I said, I think it was the bottom step of, you know, we learned our way around Vegas, and now it's only gonna get better because I think that 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 invitational part of the tournament, especially with the collegiates, and hopefully with some men's teams, because I, I was talking to Talks, I want to go. Like, I want to go. I want to play Cal Berkeley. I want to play San Diego State. I want to play BYU or Utah. I want to go. Mm. So that kind of thing, and then you're bringing in all these teams, and then it just becomes a better and better event, and you just see all these wonderful people, and it, you can't even get your way through them. It was it was so great, and, and I'm glad that the sponsors were there. I, I was not aware that our sponsors were all there. That That's tremendous. Bruce, we spoke off air, and it was an interesting uh, comment you made with the people you flew across the country with to see the the event, and uh, and about uh, you know there's a really strong uh, gay rugby community in America, and uh, and and it was an interesting uh, comment you made about how they in particular appreciated uh, the the rugby itself more than uh, maybe the the other uh, straight community. Yeah, I, I, I actually uh, I, I flew over with a um, I flew over with a gay couple and and they um, they were saying that it would be tremendous if Sevens was more marketed toward the gay community, not in the sense of some kind of crazy flamboyant thing, like serious. Like when when you look at Olympic figure skating um, from the men's, women's, and mixed side, the gay community is a massive part of it, as it is in swimming and as it is in diving. And and I'm sure there's other sports that I'm probably missing, but they go and as they said, they go. We're generally very wealthy, generally very well educated, generally spend a lot of money, um, generally buy better seats, generally buy better hotel rooms, buy more expensive food, and we accessorize. And like you know, you guys don't buy the t-shirts and the hats and the this and that. We do. And like. We can make a lot of money for you. Like if you want sevens to grow. And on top of it, they're like, you guys don't even watch the game. All you do is you wander around talking to your friends, drinking beer all day. We're actually watching the game and enjoying ourselves, um, drinking something that is 
more refreshing than beer. Whereas he's like, you know, you guys tend to drink uh, slug down cheap beer. We tend to drink and eat more expensive stuff. We'll get a box. We'll do things. Like, you know, that and, – and that – their point was is that not to say it like it's a gay game, but just to say that it's entertaining to the gay community and that, that it is something that they could be part of. They enjoy the music. They enjoy the festival. They enjoy going out. They enjoy talking to people. They enjoy seeing – and and the fact is, hey, man, if it if it's something that that's there, I, I think that we should tap into it. I think that it's something – Absolutely. It's hugely important. I mean, the the only people who watch rugby demographically throughout the world are rugby players and former rugby players. If we could tap into five to ten percent of our population who doesn't play rugby and is not a former rugby player, you you know, we have a possibility of having thirty million fans as opposed to the that was a tipping tipping point in Ireland in the last uh, six, seven years is the number of people watching rugby. Uh, who were not from a rugby background changed, the whole demographic changed. I knew people who, like from Gaelic football, soccer backgrounds, who never watched rugby in their lives, suddenly start to follow rugby closely. And it, it was a tipping point in, in the game in Ireland, for sure. And then the, the numbers went through the roof, and, and the sponsorship went through the roof, and, and the whole game took off, really, in, in, on that basis. This is a very important point, because if rugby were to break out from its very limited fan base, as you said, Bruce, referees, uh, relations of players and, and, and coaches and actually go mainstream, because it's not. If it goes mainstream, then there's no stopping the code. And, and events like this uh, are really uh, one way of getting through. Wait, you got to look at it and say, and it, this was serious. This wasn't like a joke conversation, like we're screwing around. We actually were saying, like, if they, if they are going to make money, this is a potential market. And, and, it's, and, and basically what we said is you don't have to really go out and sell it that way. Just let it be known that you're there and we're welcome. Hmm. There's no changing the That's game. It. There's no changing the game here. You've already Actually the game is the game the sevens game is better for that because in fifteens it's a lateral game that moves forward. There's a lot of physicality, the ball disappears for long periods of time, and there's more kicking and there's you know, little rules as to why did he kick behind that line yeah. and not in front, you know, then the ball all that's kind of eliminated in sevens. The ball doesn't disappear. You kind of see it. It's wide open. There's more scoring and there's less really confusion as to the, the rules of the game. And then get them and then hopefully they get and, and join in the fifth. But Bruce, bottom line uh, is I want the fans. Yeah, Bruce, this is a really interesting subject. I mean, uh, I, I think we should um, try to get one of the uh, guys on. What do you think? In a future I show? That, uh, I, I, think that, I think that they would... Uh, I think that they would jump at the chance to be on, and I and I think that they would. It'd actually be interesting to get them on with, with the owner of the sevens. Yeah. See, like, what does he think? You know, it'd be it'd be interesting. Yeah, well, I do agree with you, Bruce. But I, and I mentioned the point that 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 was the breakthrough for Ireland. This was getting a different demographic into the game, and, and this is exactly what you're talking about here. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's it, it it's all down to 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 popularity and people. You know, in watching the game and being part of the game, that not necessarily growing up with the game. And if we stick within our community all the time in America here, in terms of only people who played or coached or, or or know somebody who's played or coached, it's going to be much harder to 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 sell the game um, to into the mainstream. All right, so it sounded like a great weekend. Uh, now, Eddie, I want to ask you uh, in terms of the the 
the two streams we talked about on the program uh, a month or so ago when we had you on and uh, about getting sevens athletes playing 15s and vice versa. What did you see at the weekend that uh, saw potential in players crossing over to the uh, the 15-man game, which, of course, uh, you were charged to uh, control in America? Well, I would say all the players I saw are potentially guys who would break into the, the 15s uh, pool pretty soon. I mean, there were some standout guys that Bruce mentioned that I was watching. I think Nick Edwards' strike rate this year has been phenomenal. Um, uh, I thought that Trenton Palamo looked excellent. Um, he's his first time out this year. Um, Leonard Peters looks really well. Um, Jack Test had a phenomenal game. I mean, he, Zach Test took two restarts in one game. Like that, were we were we were kicking, and he went up and won them on the run. I mean, it was just extraordinary athleticism. And uh, he's a kid that's that's in college in Loughborough in England. And um, it was interesting that that Rory Underwood was there from from Leicester, um, who, who I know. And uh, Leicester are in the market at the moment, and he was really impressed with Kevin Swearn and Zach Test, and, and you know, those those type of opportunities are, are are exactly what we're looking for for our guys. You know, if we can get them overseas into those uh, basically world class programs, you know, at top at the top of Europe, um, there's a lot of guys played. I mean, I don't want to if I pick out guys, I'm going to miss somebody, but everybody played well. Everyone that was out there played well, and I, I, I've seen. I see that at the moment, at this moment in time, and, and this may change down the track, and, and, and I you know, I think we could talk about that again some other time, but at this moment in time, we need all the players we can get in, in both programs. For, for, for the short-term future, as it is now, all the guys who are in the sevens program are all potential 15s players, and not all the 15s guys are going to be sevens, but again, it, there, will be, there will be a huge crossover there. So the two programs have to work hand-in-hand hand, uh, for, for, for the short term at least. And, and at some point, there will be a diversification when the Olympic um, uh, Olympic Games come into come into to, to view. Uh, but in, in the meantime, I see most, if not all, those guys uh, pitching into the fifteens program at some point. When will that happen? When will the um, the narrowing of the focus for the games happen? In terms of the where where we will have more specialised sevens players. Yeah, exactly. When we get oh, when well, do you, when you make the point? Where, okay, here, this is our Olympic. This is where we're going to focus these players on the yeah. Olympic uh, charge. Well, I think it's it's a bit down the track because the our Olympic Games, our first Olympic Games, isn't until 2016. Mm. You know, which is six years away, and um, probably the guys who will run out in in in, in Rio uh, in in the sevens uh, would be guys who are probably coming out in the high school now. Uh, so for the current crop, it's unlikely many of those guys will survive right through to that time for the sevens but I think probably you know within three or three years out you know in the next two to three years we will have to start thinking along those lines but in the meantime um, I think there is no reason to diversify because we're talking about the same guys uh, being needed for both programs because in the meantime we've got to keep both programs going forward and getting better I was actually talking to Tony Rinell about that who was a he, he was an Eagle sevens player and an Eagle fifteens player and a and he said that 2016, our stars are somewhere between 16 and 20 years old. And he said that, you know, most guys, he goes, our true stars are 16 and 17. He said, that means that New Zealand doesn't know who their 16 and 17th their Olympians are, nor does Fiji, nor does anyone else. So that we have an opportunity that almost kind of like we're equal. And it was an interesting take on it, 
that we're equal because they don't know. They may have exposure to the game, but they still don't know who their guys are. And if we could get some crossover guys and get some real athletes and get the ball in their hands, um, I don't know if I had spoken about this on last week's show, but there was a guy named Stephen Boyd who coaches Chaminade High School was was at um, a New York Athletic Club practice, and we were just doing line out lifting and line outs and 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 some basic defensive stuff. And it was in a gym, and he he played for the Detroit Lions. He was a, a two-time All-Pro, played for Boston College. He replaced Chris Spielman, and and now he's a, a coach in Long Island at one of the, one of the larger schools. And he said to me, because my brothers went to Boston College, and I said, hey, do you coach Chaminade? And he said, yeah, I got to talk to you. I need a program at my school. He goes, we need to play this game in the spring. He goes, my players are playing lacrosse, and it's not doing anything to make them better football players. I see that this is going to make my team better. How can I do it? We need guys. We need to find 200 of him, and and then we can and then we can go. And we had talked about trying to put something together to uh, like a program to be able to make that happen, and you know, and so we're we're in talks with that and trying to get a Catholic league in New York to do sevens because it's easier to start a sevens program. You don't have to really know you know you don't have to know all the intricacies of 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 scrummaging and lineouts and all that and and uh so that that's something that I I I see actually diversification quicker than Eddie does but it, it's an interesting interesting uh component to it I'll tell you it it it's gonna be a it's gonna be a weird it's gonna be an awesome time but it's gonna be also a weird time because there's going to be professional opportunities. Like Eddie's really working hard on trying to get these guys opportunities. And with professional opportunities, that means, well, then they're not going to play sevens. They're going to play 15s and maybe come back to sevens. But the crossover athlete is, that's so attractive too to the universities because sevens is the Olympic sport and 15s is the World Cup sport. It's different. The Olympics means more. The Olympics means more to my club, the New York Athletic Club. With the Olympics, they have now, you know, told us that that needs to be a focus. And so it's, yeah, it's kind of a strange, strange egg. And, and, uh, although Mike and I will continue to focus very heavily on 15s, we, uh, we do understand that we are going to have to marry this up a little bit. Well, let's talk about the 15s. Eddie, uh, you talked about, and Bruce mentioned there, working hard on, I guess, placement, seeing players play in the professional game. Are you actively at the moment looking at um, at placements uh, potentially for players in Europe at the moment? Well, we're open to placing them anywhere, but uh, yeah, Europe is is kind of where we're looking at in the mainstream. Um, we we have a number of guys who are ready to travel, um, you know, from next summer on, and I, I, we've got to try and get ahead of the curve on this. And um, what I've done is I've appointed an agent in, in Europe, um, where where the he'd be our go-to guy. You know, it doesn't mean if a, uh, if a player's got an agent already, he doesn't have to use this guy, and that's not a problem. But a lot of our guys don't have agents. Um, so rather than having, you know, 10 guys with eight different agents and trying to manage that situation, I, I've tracked on a guy who's pretty experienced in Europe. He, he lives in Wales. He's, he's, uh, he's got contacts in the, um, in, in, in the Guinness Premiership. But more importantly, he's lived in France as well, and he knows all the French clubs. So he's been down in France already. Uh, so we, we've got a, we've got like eight or ten guys in the pipeline, you know. We've we've, we've got Kevin Square, and we've, we've got um, Mike Petrie, Louis Stanfield, uh, uh, Pat Dennehy, um Chris Spiller, 
Brian McLennan, like I goes on, we've got up to 10 guys who all want to go. But what I try to do is get ahead of the curve here and um, uh, give this guy like a five-month run. And if we start this process in May or June, we're going to miss the boat. We've got to start now in, in end of January, beginning of February. But what we've done is to try and make our players more accessible. The, the difficulty with, with selling an American player, um, and it's a misconception uh, into Europe, is that one is clubs, you know, they, they underestimate the ability of the guy. And, and it's only when you show them what they're capable of, they realise that these guys can play. Uh, also, you know, these guys are low maintenance. They've got a fantastic attitude. They come in, they walk their socks off. And, and and they get you get a really good American player uh, if you want to put it this way on the cheap compared to buying in a, a New Zealander or a South African. Um, these guys, you know, will 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 come in and set st a starting contract at a very good rate. So trying to get the clubs to buy into that and realise that they should look west before they look south, maybe you know. And and to help their process along, um, again, David Hodges, who's been working on this, is we're we're putting together all these guys' CVs and and their best moments, and we put them up online on YouTube. So if you're a coach in, 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 in France or in England and you, you want to look at Louis Stanfield, you just go to YouTube and put in Louis Stanfield and up Louis' moments come and, you know, you get to watch, you know, 10 minutes of the guy playing plus the CV. So all that's in process at the moment and it's been very helpful. And um, we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty optimistic we can get most of the guys overseas. And the big plus for us is if we can get most of those guys overseas for the next year, like I'm talking... You know the, the the fall or the or, or, of this year right through to the finish of the European season in 2011. That means they have a full year of professional rugby under their belts, going to rugby world cup, and that that would be fantastic. What about Super Rugby? I know you're not a, not the big, biggest fan, Eddie, as you said on Rugby Matrix International uh, last year. But uh, yeah, the, the timing I mean, that was, the, the timing could be okay. I mean, uh, you know, could, yeah. I mean, like again, you have the Melbourne the the new Melbourne um, mm. uh, franchise. I mean, again. I would be delighted to see. I mean, guys going to Super Super Fourteen or Super Fifteen. I mean, at the same time, I, I, my comments were about the, the way the game was being played, and I mm. felt that was to do with the laws as much as anything else, you know. Um, but uh, if you look at Todd Clever, who's thrived down in in, in Joburg uh, with the Lions, and certainly uh, I would look south to the equator just as quickly because for our guys to get into that professional environment, I think they would function really well. You know, these guys are good professionals. They they have a great work ethic. Um, they're low maintenance and and they learn. Their learning curve is very 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 steep. Uh, it's just it's just again getting someone to take a punt on a guy. And um, I think the more they see of our, of our guys, the more they realise that. And, and certainly, um, I know that even at the moment, um, Wellington um, are interested in, in talking to Kevin Swearing about potential NPC. So you know there are, there are possibly south to the equator as well. So we would go. We would get these guys to go wherever they need to go, and, and these guys will go wherever. They're asked to because oh, they've only one ambition is to become professional players uh, and make a career out of it. And, and, you know, that sort of motivation is hard to beat. Bruce, we spoke about uh, video last week with Scott Lawrence at a high school level. But even at this level, it's, it's critical to have the information uh, one click away and the, and the vision very close to it as well. Well, uh, you know, what, what Eddie said that Dave did, and actually I'm going to backtrack a step. In fairness, on, on, on the Rugger Matrix International podcast, Eddie never said anything about Super Rugby being being not something. It, it, it was about actually the laws of the ELVs 
because when you look at Super Rugby, the players and the coaches and the, and the staffs and, and okay, and okay, athlete, we can't know. let Eddie off lightly here. Eddie, you did say that you weren't interested in watching it at the time. And no, I, because, I, but it was because of the ELVs, though. In fairness to him, it was because of the ELVs. It wasn't because of look. Of Eddie, the players. Eddie can take care of himself, can't you, Eddie? <laughs> I can indeed. Yeah, I did say that because I wasn't watching at the time. I was pretty bored with it, and yeah. I, I remember saying that because I used to record it and delete it, um, yeah. and. I think it had a lot to do with a lot had to do with the LVs. I, did. I agree I, with you. I, saw, I, I, I agree with. You. I think. Yeah. It went through and a I saw terrible period. On the weekend. I saw something on the weekend again. Now, uh, when we were in Vegas, it was on screen there, and uh, again, there was some of the games that were poor, but some of them again were were um, were when when the teams had figured out what they were trying to do, they actually looked good. But I would go back. I'd watch a lot of Heineken over 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 the winter in Europe as well, and I've come to the conclusion at the moment you can get some really good games of rugby. But there's probably four poor games to get one good game, and that's a poor ratio. And mm. let's be honest here, guys. I'm not saying that, and we don't know because if you talk to the powers that be, they're in a tough place. They know the game is not functioning like they want it at the moment, mm. but they're kind of locked into a promise that they wouldn't screw around with it before the next World Cup. And and I think we are where we are. But I, I suspect they're going to, have to stand back and look at it again after the next World Cup. And I get it's important not to screw around with it now because we're on like we're 20 months over World Cup. We don't want to mess around with the laws, but. I think everyone would, would would say the game is not exactly the game we want to play at the moment. It's funny, Eddie, because they they actually have done that in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, the law interpretation of the breakdown has changed dramatically, and it's basically it's, yeah. it's a basically. And if you looked at all the games, you you'll see that um, they basically um, got rid. Of the open side effectiveness is out of the game. Phil Wall uh, uh, was pretty much. Um, uh, ineffectual at the weekend uh, for the Waratahs Reds game because basically the tackler has got to get out of the place and allow attacking footy and teams are more confident with the football the powers that be got together and said this is how we're going to interpret the law in the southern hemisphere so I can see a bit of a divide happening already heading into world, the World Cup year next year well yeah there's no well, question I, I... And the big issue if we have a if we have a divergence in interpretation at the breakdown it could be catastrophic for a tournament like the World Cup. Mm. You know, there'll always be complaints when in the fall when the Southern Hemisphere come up to to to, the, to Europe, or we go down in the summer, and 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 there's there's interpretations. But when it comes to the big showpiece, if we're not all lockstep and on the same page, you know, that could be catastrophic for a tournament. Mm. I, I don't think it. I I thought I thought that uh, they made that directive, that same directive, tackle or get away in. Uh, in the northern hemisphere too, and it was it was somewhat upsetting. The less he, he um, Chuck Denigian, the old old blue, the old old blue coach, and I used to call how they called the games in in like 1999, 2000, winners out rugby. You know, you you essentially you take it into contact. If you don't screw it up, you win the ball no matter what. There's nothing the other team can do to get it without getting yeah, you know it's a rugby ball in the hand thrown up. <laughs> and uh, so. You know, I, I think that I think that they're going to come to something there. That like, I, I'll tell you, I did. I did watch Ireland France. Uh, you know, we saw the we saw the Super 14 as best as we were able to do. It was it was on right in front of us. But you know, and and but the seeing seeing Ireland France, I, it was actually something that was somewhat entertaining. And although Ireland got beaten badly on the scoreboard, it wasn't a bad game of rugby. It was just they did some stupid things and beat themselves. And and I gotta, but now I really div, I, I really created a diversion that was useless. Um, why don't we talk about uh, 
Dave Hodges has done some really good things, like especially with Petrie and Stanfield. Say those are the, those are the couple that I've seen, and we sent them to Billy Millard, Simon Hardy, and Les Kiss, and they were impressed with all of it. So there are videos out there of Americans. It's just a matter of is there a way that we can get an opportunity for an American to play as teams and countries are locking down their ability to allow foreigners into their system. Yeah, and Eddie, you've and got that's it. Yeah. Actually, Eddie, this is interesting because we wanted to talk about this. And before we get into coaching stuff, why don't we talk about the discussion that you had with Augustine Pichot from Argentina about where he's not necessarily it's going to happen in a year or two or five years, but where he saw the game as the Americas, the, the, uh, you know, the Europe and Africa and then Asia and how we better get our act together and work together. Yeah, well, he had a, he has a vision of the game that might might be a little bit off the beam at this moment in time, but there's a logic to it is that um, that the, the world could break up into three blocks of rugby, which would be really happen if South Africa threw the, their pitch in with Europe, uh, which... You know, where it, it sounds crazy, but when you think about it, it's easier to get from Cape Town to London than from Cape Town to Perth. You know, and uh, there's less issues. It's an overnight flight. It's probably cheaper as well. So that could put stress on the whole Super 15 structure over time, whether, you know, it could be sustainable financially, um, depending on, on, the, on the global market for sport and, and the costs of running it. Um, that it could it could happen that if, if and the trip, tipping point could be if, if South Africa get into Europe, if they get their their um, their franchises into the Heineken Cup, or and, and they get if they got the Springboks into the Six Nations in some shape or form, um, that would mean that that they would just pull out of the out of, out of the Sanzar, and that would mean that Australia, New Zealand would have to look at developing up into Japan and China, and that would also isolate America somewhat. We would have to look at developing Canada, USA, Argentina, Uruguay. And Pichot's aware that if that were to happen, and he's, he, this guy's got his interesting vision, that the Americas would want to be strong. So it's, it's, in, New, it's in Argentina's interest that Canada and USA develop. So when that moment arrives, that we're all, we're all able to take advantage of it and be part of it. Um, it was kind of thinking outside the box, I thought, but the more I thought about it and spoke to him, you know, you've got to say that there's a logic there. And I don't know if it'll happen. And it certainly won't happen overnight, but it's a very interesting uh, concept and a very interesting possibility if it did happen. If South Africa go, and there is a Seven Nations, the power of the game shifts into that, um, into into that time European, zone. Yeah. yeah, and it's un- yeah. the unbelievable ch- game-changing moment. It would be colossal. Like, no question about that. It would be a paradigm shift in the world game as, as we understand it. Um, and it would affect everybody. It would affect, obviously, Europe and South Africa. It would affect America. It would affect Sanzar colossally. I mean, effectively, then you would just have an Australasia block, uh, which were the two powerhouses, obviously, or Australia, New Zealand. But they may have then they may have to put their hand to the wheel and develop Tonga, Fiji, Samoa more, hmm. uh, bring Japan in, bring China in. So suddenly, those the power blocks of the game could could be completely different as from as we know them. It's pretty exciting to think about it. I mean, we're not talking next year or the year after. We could be talking ten years on the track here. Eddie and I had noticed something very briefly on the weekend when. Because sevens plays with a sweeper and they play kind of a drift defense with a sweeper. And, he, and what happens is when you push a team to the sideline, they, they end, they, you know, they, sometimes you get yourself in the even numbers position. 
and they were still playing soft in some of the teams. And Eddie, let's just talk through what the philosophy is that you guys have. And, and I'm, I mean, I hear Tolkien say it every single night at practice, so it, it's not new to me. What do, uh, you know, like we were talking about, once you have yeah, even well, numbers, then what? Well, well, the principle of the drift offense is you're, you're leaving numbers outside you and you believe that, you know, by the time the ball gets there, you'll have to, you'll be able to drift or wedge out there and, 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 and seal it off. Um, and, and again, you've got to recognize when your numbers are bad, um, you know, if you're down, the more numbers are down, the softer you play. And, and as the numbers get better, you play harder, your defensive line gets stronger. And ultimately, when you number off, as we call it, in other words, you've got three against three or four against four or two against two, you go up and you light somebody up. You, you get a lot more aggressive because you don't have to play laterally anymore. But it's quite interesting watching the sevens um, that, you know, they, they have to play a lot of that soft defense because they do have a situation regularly where there's lots of numbers outside them on a full-size rugby pitch and you're playing with seven guys spread across the pitch or less if there's a ruck. Um, so they tend to play soft, but it's interesting to see that even when they numbered off on the weekend, a lot of teams didn't play hard up. In fact, the team that were most aggressive on defense on the weekend, and, and it almost worked for them in terms of getting them where they wanted was South Africa. They were very aggressive, and um, they were the one team that when they numbered off, they came up and they hit people. It's just an interesting concept that in 15s you've got to do that. You know, you, you can't play soft when your numbers are even. You've got to go and light somebody up. Um, but I thought it was, it was an interesting way to look at it, and they did just a little bit differently. Um, certainly, if I was there, I would have wanted them to come up, but I'm sure they have good reasons for not doing that. Well, now we're going to talk about scoring from first phase, why you would attempt to score from first phase, does it work, have you had success with it in the past, and I know that Juro, as he probably is very interested in this topic, so we'll let you guys get on it, and I'll just chime in kind of when I'm, when I feel like it. Well, I'm a huge fan of, of trying to score off first phase, and and it goes back uh, to the Wallabies, um, the Grand Slam Wallabies that that came to tour Europe um, in, in in the mid '80s, and they were the first team that I saw that recognized defense first phase defensive structure, which back then wasn't that particularly awesome. It was like guys pretty much tackled the, the, the guy with the opposite them and there was no real finesse to it. But they recognized that and and they, they just tore teams apart. It was like when Campisi was in his heyday. And and they, they recognized that at first phase and this is why we have we have set pieces was to gather, you know, eight or eight players from each side into one spot and that leaves space to attack. It was the one time uh, when you get real space on a rugby field. And that hasn't changed in, in the modern game. In fact, it's even more, more the case. You know, once that once the first strike is defended, now you're looking at probably, on, your, on the game line, you're probably looking at the region of, you know, 10 or 11 defenders across the game line, depending on how they did in the backfield. So when you have a scrum or lineup, you've got eight of the defenders all in one place. So that's your best shot at attacking space. So I've always been a great believer, and, and with Ireland, I think if you go back historically over the last um, the last six seven years, we got quite a few tries from from set piece because we worked our shots off of it. And even last year with the Eagles, we picked up some off set piece in the Churchill Cup and then against Canada in the World Cup qualifiers. And we we um, we did the same in Uruguay down there. Was, we scored off set piece. So it, it's time well spent, I believe. But you have to remember as well, it can't be all or nothing. It can't be like if we don't score our first phase, we turn the football over. So you've got to build a system around it where that if you don't score on your first strike, you still hold on to the football and play on. But I'm a huge fan of it, I think. And I'd just like to see teams do more of it. 
Um, I, I just think that too many teams just take the ball off the top of the line and they give it to some trucker who bangs it up the middle and doesn't look for anything more than a good five-yard game line. Um, it doesn't challenge the defence mentally. It challenges them physically. And, and it's just about car wreck rugby from there, you know. So I'm, I'm just a huge fan of that. And I always have, and I, I can't see them changing for, for, for the foreseeable future. It's the move uh, that uh, you like to see that's well executed, isn't it, Eddie? I, I remember yeah. Eddie Jones coaching Australia and uh, a magnificent try scored against South Africa at the uh, Gabba, actually. It was played at the Brisbane Cricket Ground that particular day. And uh, it was, uh, was, was an unbelievable uh, backline move that was dissected in the paper for three days. Graphs were thrown, uh, shown in. Uh, ben Tune scored the try and uh, George Gregan dummied a couple of times. It was, it was very well executed. But it was some, something that captured uh, everyone's imagination. And, and I think it's because of that very reason, Eddie, that you don't see it often. No, you don't. I mean, I was going to say that, Jory. If you look at it now, very few teams actually try and score off first phase. They're just happy to try and get over the game line and get some momentum. And I don't I don't I I think you can do both. I don't think by getting over the line game line and getting momentum you preclude yourself from from actually breaking out and scoring. I mean we scored um, in the Churchill Cup this year Mike Petrie got a, a great try because we ran a set play against England. First scrum uh, you know under twenty two if you go back and look at the tape, we ran a set play and we, we split them wide open and Petrie took the offload and went under six, you know. And um, we we did that with Ireland a number of times. We, we got South Africa a number of years ago again on set plays. I remember um, in 2004, our first scrum on the left-hand side, we ran a set play and Trimble went right under the sticks and scored. Like, And the forwards uh, the forwards get up from those set pieces. They trap back to halfway for the conversion. They're pretty happy campers, you know. Um, I remember Driscoll got a, a fantastic try against the All Blacks in Hamilton in 2006 off a set play. Um, we, we just... We, we, we actually, at the time, I remember the build-up to that, we watched the tape closely, and we recognised that, that Ma Nanu was just checked. If, if you ran a, a runner under him, he checked for a half second before he tried to push out. I remember we ran Trimble under him, and he checked for a second, and O'Driscoll just got the outside. He was dead in the water. And something like O'Driscoll can do that to you, obviously. So you spend a lot of time setting it up. You spend a lot of time in training, perfecting it. And, and I, when it comes off, it's probably one of the best feelings. And so you ask any of the forwards, and they're all forwards as well, I can tell you. So uh, when you're coaching the team, how much time can you spend on it? Because that's the ultimate thing. As, as coaches uh, listen to this show every week, uh, you, mm. you, can, you, can, you, know, you all want your piece of the pie, don't you, Eddie? And, and constructing yeah. a well-rehearsed move does take time. It does, but it, 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 again... You know, we, you start out with a, a fairly simple move and then you, you build in two or three options off it. And suddenly you've got a set play that gives you through two or three strike points, which if they work, you're, you're on a clean break, clean line break. If they don't work, you get over the gain line, you resource them. But we would normally spend, you know, when we send Ben the fours away to work on their line and scrum, that's their set piece. That's our time for set piece. Mm. And we don't spend all that time on set piece plays. We spend quite a amount of it. And we also work on counter-attack and kicking. But we would spend a substantial amount of time each week on our set-piece plays because they're, they're, our, they're our way over the game line. Even if we don't get that line break and score, they're still our way over the game line uh, once the ball comes off the top of the line or away from the scrum. And so that, it's time well uh, spent. And there's an element of uh, euphoria that you uh, just spoke about. I mean, when you nail a move, there is just nothing better than a feeling. I remember oh. a, a high school coach of mine 
I had this move uh, called Shuffle, and uh, we uh, I, I used it in a couple of teams afterwards. It was a rugby league move, Eddie, and, and every single time we used it, we scored. It was almost yep. impossible to stop. <laughs> That's right. And if you have the accuracy, I mean, it, it goes... We, I remember we worked on this, would you believe, back in 99, 98 with Jack Clark, uh, with the Eagles. We used to call it simultaneous attack. In other words, if they have three defenders and we have four attackers, take it that simply... Um, if all four attackers are a threat on the game line, the defence is a problem. But if only three of the four attackers threaten the game line, the three defenders are actually in pretty good shape. And if it's worse, if only two of the attackers threaten the game line, the defence is now in charge. It's got an extra defender. So if you can run lines of attack that threaten the game line in every position, then suddenly the defence have a problem. And if you can expand that into five or six players doing it off a line or a scrum, if six attackers go to the line, everyone's liable to make a line break, then the defence have real headaches. All it takes is one or two guys not to show up or run a bad line, and it gets easier for the defence. And then you're into the, the Carrick rugby we talk about. Hmm. So I, I, we, we, see it, we see teams do both, but we mainly see teams just taking the soft option, which is giving somebody the ball on a really aggressive line and trying to run over two people um, and put a quick ball back. That tends to be the modus operandi. And I think it's a pity. I just think that's a pity. Can I, I'm, I'm going to jump in right here. Um, actually, I think that, that Clark and Cal are still using that philosophy. And based on what I saw over the weekend against San Diego State and based on what I've seen against us in the past, and when they, get in the, when they, don't, when they don't do that, when they don't threaten the game line, when they don't threaten with hard-running guys, then, then they kind of break down. And, and later in the game against San Diego State, I think that they, uh, they had a comfortable lead, and I, and I think they weren't using that as discipline. The other thing is we talk, you talk about set-piece set moves. It's not necessarily that it has to be anything super complicated. It doesn't have to be a one-loop, two, miss, three, meaning one hit the center, loop the center, miss the outside center, hit the fullback, and then he switches with the wing and they go under the sticks or something. It doesn't have to be anything that complicated. You could. There was a great set-piece move scored in the uh, in the Lions test just off a line-out, an inside dump from 10 to J.P. Peterson, and I think they did the same off of a scrum. And you, it, it's just recognizing the space and recognizing the opportunity and simple skills, as Bob Dwyer says all the time on your show, Jiro, simple skills executed perfectly create beautiful rugby. And that's what, that that's what you're really Bruce, looking at in the first phase move. That particular move, that? We scored, we scored, that particular move, we scored against Canada this year in, in, the, in the qualifiers in, in, in July. Kevin Swearham scored off that play. You know, yeah. um, exact same play. We took him off the tail of a line out. We had a little, slightly different wrinkle on it because we, we sent the open side flanker a bit wider uh, and we, we dropped him inside the open side flanker off the halfback and he went clean through yeah. his hand. So it's it's the same principle. It doesn't. You're right, it doesn't have to be rocket science. I mean, if you go back to Petri's try against the Saxons in the Churchill Club, all we did was run a blind just side an offload from the centre. It was just, uh, well, you know, it was well, just smack, a, smack, take the fullback on offload. It was easy. Well, what I did is ran the full back behind the outside, uh, the outside centre, and, and the outside centre defending had a choice to make, and he went for the wedge, and we just hit, we just sent the outside, our outside centre had to be Roland uh, Soniula under him, and then the offload was on, on the stick. So it was a very simple move, but very well executed. That's the key. And it, 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 most of the best moves are simplicity done well. 
execution, as we, we mentioned. Just a point you made before, and I wanted to quickly expand on it as we uh, we start to wind up the show, Bruce. Uh, but, Eddie, you, you indicated, a, I guess, a plan B. If, if, if the first strike doesn't happen, you haven't put all your eggs in one basket and say, well, right. all, all that's stuffed up. What do we do now? How do you make sure well, we, that you that you keep um, you keep attacking if it doesn't quite work? Because we, we have a basic shape off 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 our first strike. We decide whether we want when we hit the ball up. That if if we don't go through on the first hit up, we're going to take the ball and work it to the far fifteen. We call it clogging the football. Keep on going, and then we may snap it back and, and reload against it, or we might go two passes. It depends on what the defence are giving us. But we have a plan beyond the first strike. I mean, if the first strike comes off, we get a major line break. Then it's just go play rugby because you don't need a plan after that. If you've got a twenty-meter gain line, or and you and are uh, you you don't go under six on that. But if you don't get that major line break, you still have to resource the football, and that's where your backs come in. We we we're happy to put three or four backs into that first rock if it means winning the football quickly for our forwards, and and then the forwards know where the next the next couple of phases are taking them, and we're we're building an attack then we're building pressure through phases and how we build that pressure depends on what the defense gives us you know if they have an aggressive line we're going to take them one way and if they have a soft line we'll take them another way but you're right you can't be all or nothing just because the guy doesn't go through doesn't mean he loses the football or the pass goes in the ground that's that's well, very important that's like that like that's harry carry you can't do that you've got to keep the football either way but it's 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 again it's not as difficult to do as one might think it's just about getting your system built around it but eddie and bronk but the the thing like the 2007 All Blacks, 2006 All Blacks, they kind of basically sold out in first phase. They sold out to try to score, but the plan was that the backs and maybe McCaw hit that first ruck. Then they yep. kind of hit it to the forwards, hit it to the forwards, and then the backs kind of reloaded and went all out to score again. Yeah, you know but what I mean. It was just system. like. We do we use that system this year. That's what we've been, we worked on for most of the summer because it was a simple pattern and it suited the players. It was there was there was no mystery to it, and it, it, we use that system. Now there's different ways of doing it, but yeah, no, I, no, and, I, and, and it, but the critical the, the thing is that, that backs have to rock, Eddie, and and they that that's what a lot of people don't get, and 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 like you spend a lot of time on backs being good at that skill because if they're not, you can't try to score in first phase. Yeah, but there's a very simple rule, Bruce, in, in, in attack. And it's when the when the scrum and uh, or the line-out is over, the number in your back is irrelevant. <laughs> just think of it like that. It doesn't matter what number's on your back uh, once yeah, the set no. piece is over. You just go, if you're if you're the one, the three nearest guys to uh, attack it, you're in there. End of story. And the sooner you figure that out, the quicker the ball's coming back. And, and we, that, that's been taken as red for a while. I mean, if you've got a back who doesn't want to go to a rock, you probably should get him run water, you know, because it's probably going to be more effective no. with that. Well, I mean, that's fair enough. And, I, and and number on your back being irrelevant was a, a major theme of our uh, of, of all the weekend conversations with anyone. Now, I, I want to get in. I want to get in one one brief thing is actually two brief things using formations to manipulate defenses so that like kind of. You know, you may have your 10 and your 12 and then your 13's a little wide. You know, just kind of using a formation to manipulate defenses to create an opportunity and dealing with the rush defense. Like trying to score in first phase against that rush defense with 13's coming up. Juro, you probably have a lot of ideas on this too because that's something that really is coming up in 
and people want to know about that and we'll and we'll expand upon this as we go along in further shows but just from a ba- from a basic standpoint you know the reader's digest version of what the f do we do in a rush defense well the first part of your question was about um just a t- attacking in, in general and the, the basic principle of attack is should be that you you take you identify the weakness and you go after the weakness okay so that's your bit. No matter what defense a team puts up, it's all about recognizing where the weakness is. And some defenses uh, give you space on the outside. That's what the weakness is. Some defenses give you space between them. And and if you run the wrong offense against the, the, the right defense, you're going to get knocked down behind the game line. And that's a fact in any sport. It doesn't matter whether it's rugby or, or, or gridiron or basketball. Um, so in doing that, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make life uncomfortable for the defense. So a defensive system wants to play a certain way. And as an attack, you've got to ask them questions they don't like answering. And, and they're the general principles that guide your attack. If you sit down and build an attack against a defense based on that, you won't go far wrong. Now, if you talk about the rush defense, the blitz defense, that, that defense is based on the fact that they don't really care how many players you have in an overlap because they believe that the ball will never reach them. They come up on in and they shut the football off. And it's very successful. And if we go back to when Jake White took over South Africa and he initiated a very aggressive up-and-in defense and Brian Urbana was the primary beneficiary where he picked off an average of two intercepts a game. Uh, and a guy at that pace, it was like manna from heaven. And I remember we played South Africa in, in 2004 in Dublin and they brought that defense and we made them do exactly what they didn't want to do. We spread out our attack and we went through them. We, we separated... The, the, the centers from the out half from the from the wing and we picked holes in the soft shoulders and the one thing about the weakness of a, of, a, of a blitz defense is you come up so hard to make a tackle you have no time to adjust so a very subtle line on, 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 on an inside or outside shoulder can split that defense right open provided and what you want to do is you want to bring them up fast if they want to come up fast you tell them to come up fast and because they're now coming at 100 miles an hour they have no chance to adjust and you pick them off. But you, to do that, you've got to spread them out. Because then the spaces between them get bigger, and it's easier to put people into those spaces. And that's the easiest way to break it. And you can, go, you can try and go around a, a blitz defense or over it. Now and again, it's worth trying it. But you can't do that all day. That leads to trouble. But by and large, you've got to spread them out and, and go through them. And because they're coming up that hard, they have no time to adjust. I can guarantee it's a nightmare for any centre uh, to defend uh, if you pull them apart. Australia has Wrong. struggled in the past uh, against rush-up defence. I remember Eddie Jones saying uh, after a press conference in Perth, actually, uh, that uh, the rush or even uh, umbrella defence is very difficult for uh, Australia to contend with. There were, were no real answers, but um, if you have a talented 10 or inside centre who can step and react quickly, then you can sort of break that uh, rush defence up, can't you, Eddie? And also, it's your passing skills that really come to the fore when you're under real heat. The other other principle, Jora, that that you have to build into breaking a rush defence is the trigger pass or the strike pass to split the defence has to be a short pass. If if your trigger pass is a long pass uh, to break an aggressive defence, it either gets picked off or the guy getting it gets just crushed when he gets it. So all all my all my strike plays against a, a, a blitz or a rush defense is about a short strike pass. So there might be one or two passes before that, 
and then we change the angles. But the, the money pass is a short pass, and that takes the risk element out of it completely. Mm. Bronk, I, I wanted to ask you about that. You actually mentioned the umbrella defense, mm. which essentially became illegal when they when when rugby league didn't have to go back five; they had to go back ten. They changed the rule. Mm. What, a, as a youth watching rugby league under the umbrella defense, where they essentially were five yards apart and it was just smash the outside and chuck everybody back to the big forwards, mm. you were seeing go- scores like, you know, six to four. Or or maybe four to two because I think it's two point penalties in rugby league. Yeah, that's right. Um, and 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 that was it was essentially unwatchable and not entertaining. Yeah, it went, and, it went and, through a period, Bruce, where um, they were so close to each other that it was just a bunch of gladiators bashing each other. It was very similar to rugby, but uh, the league had to develop a deeper and deeper in attack to make uh, any inroads. Uh, and then when the game went to 10 metres apart, um, for a while there, things went okay. And this is something that I've talked about with Gary Ella, who actually thinks that the, for the greater separation of scrum time in rugby actually doesn't promote better attack because you telegraph what you're doing. He preferred in the old days, and the team that 84, Eddie, that you talked about uh, that went to uh, the Grand Slam, uh, Australia, could play, at, could play at the line with great skill. So no, uh, have, yeah. and, and This is actually pretty funny. You mentioned that. Eddie and I discussed this, and Tony Smith, the coach of Trinity, used to be the backs coach, who's over in Ireland right now, mm. used to be the backs coach for the Eagles. He is infuriated with that law. I mean, infuriated. And Eddie. Oh, he talked also, to Gary. Gary like, Ella, I thought he was going to. Well, you talked to explode. Eddie O'Sullivan. Eddie <laughs> O'Sullivan over the, over the weekend was like, hey, man, all it is is creating that. That 10 spot is where the tackle line, that's where the game line is, and essentially you're at the game line, so everything's happening through the 10 channel. And I was saying, in fairness, they have run some dummies, and they have, and the game has evolved a little bit so that they're going more, they're going wider more often. Hmm. And they're able to link the, the 9, 10, 7. But it, you, you had the same feeling as Gariella in a Absolutely. big way. I agree with Gariella 100%. I think. And if you think why that, that law variation was brought in, they put the defence blind back five minutes from the scrum to allow the backs more space to attack. Um, and, and, and they want them to attack wide, but back, teams are not attacking wide. They're, they're attacking that channel. They're trying to, to, to fracture that channel between the seven and the ten where the tag on is very difficult. And so again, it's, it's feeding into the car wreck rugby off first phase where you send a big 12 down that channel and he's pretty much guaranteed a gain line every time. There's no incentive to go wide. Now, I would be, be fair to say, one of the teams that have, have actually taught outside the box that have been Leinster, uh, with Pantapomi at 10 and a, a couple of years ago in Sexton, uh, when that five-meter channel or five-meter uh, offside line came in, they started using loop-arounds and wrap-arounds with, with Darcy and Driscoll, and they had some really good success with that. But that was Michael Cech, again, you know, taking advantage of that and looking outside the box. And I would have the same view. But by and large, a lot of coaches don't. They'd send that big man down the inside of that number 10 shoulder and, and take that game on every time. In the last couple of years of uh, the George Gregan and Larkin mirror at the Brumbies in Super Rugby, uh, Eddie, you noticed that they were getting deeper and deeper in attack and they would come off with some, they would pull off some great uh, uh, runarounds, wraparounds, uh, deep passing, but that would all happen 20 metres before the game line. So yeah. it looked great, but nothing really happened. Uh, yeah, you've got to, it's that old trade-off between 
the tackle line and the gain line. And what people don't realise, I think, is the deeper you lie, you've got to get past the tackle line to get to the gain line. That's mm. where the, the tackle line is the imaginary line that, that's created where, the, where each defender meets his opposite number uh, in attack. And if you actually, I, I often do this at coaching clinics, I actually get a defensive back line and an attacking back line and get to walk towards each other and stop when they get eyeball to eyeball. And you put a marker down and you can see that the tackle line is on the wrong side of the gain line for the offense. And so you've got to get past the tackle line to get to the gain line, which is, there's no, there's no rocket science there. But here's the thing. The deeper you lie, the deeper the tackle line comes and the further you are behind the gain line. So it's that trade-off. How flat can we lie to keep the tackle line close to the gain line without having not enough time to play? And that's the big conundrum. And that's, that's, why, that's why good back play is hard to come by. Because guys have to understand all those dynamics and all those variables. But when you, when you saw good back lines functioning, uh, the Wallabies back lines, they all, all those guys understood that logic. Hmm. And, and they, could, they could rip you open off, off first phase. Like and applied, I, that, that's yeah. gone, 20 years ago, I, that's what... what I, Kind of made my uh, set my head thinking about this, and I've never, I've never neglect, I've never said to myself, "Oh, that principle doesn't work anymore." I've always held to that principle when I coached the Eagles, when I coached Ireland, and now even with the Eagles again, I've always held to that principle. I coached Black Rock, I did it as well. I coached Connacht, mm. I tried to do it, and I, I got that logic from the Wallabies. Do you think Eddie, um, the obsession with a power game now means that people want to attack from depth, and then that flat attack? Which, which spawned some great rugby. I mean, if you get a chance to look up the 84 series, Mark Eller and his prime, uh, please, do, please, yeah, please do. Please do. I, I, what, I, a, what a magician. I, I, what a magician. I, play, yeah. I played against them in, in, um, in, in Tom and Park when they played Munster. And they beat, that Wallaby team beat Munster uh, 31-19. Um, it was a famous game because it was a heavy fog. Uh, a lot mm. of people who paid their ticket didn't get to see it. But, but, but Mark Eller played that day and... I, I, my image of it was he was running with the ball and it was the weirdest feeling in the world. He was like a guy on rollerblades and you were up to your ankles in mud. That's how it felt. Mm. He, he just had this capacity to change direction in complete balance. It was an extraordinary feeling actually getting, trying to get near the guy and tackle him. And he went on in that tour to score a try in every test game. That's right. You know, it's an extraordinary record that, to, to do that. Actually, there is some... and. And by mistake, I just happened. I was just messing around on YouTube, and I saw the careful, England Wallabies careful. game. <laughs> oh, you said YouTube. I said me- I said messing around <laughs> yeah, on okay. YouTube. Okay. Right. On, on. I was messing around on YouTube, and I and I saw the the England versus Wallabies game, and it's actually you you get to see it. It is it is some very there are some very gifted back play, and Nigel Melville actually was playing scrum half. In the uh, in the well, '84 go. game against the uh, against the Wallabies. So um, Bruce, I, w- I wanted to add to that that, in a way, is um, I think your phone's going ballistic there. But uh, uh, in a way, everything that's old is is new again in this game. And uh, if you know when to when to use it or be brave enough, maybe as a checker with well, with with Leinster, uh, then, then 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 go for it. Well, Bronk, one of the reasons, I, and 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 I just wanted to get into what I, one of the things that he said. One of the reasons with the five yards back on the on the, on the uh, on the, between the scrums, what happens is you can essentially play your ten on the five, and they have to play their ten on the five, and everybody else is going to be a little bit steeper as you go out. So, it, it's the one place on the field where the game line is the game line. The game line and the tackle line are the same place. 
And that's how come everybody kind of goes through the 10 channel. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, and, yeah, but you don't have you move to, wider, you don't have to you move a wider approach that the tackle line does get on the wrong side of the game line. It's the one the point. Get the, no, the tackle line does that. And that's how come you hate the scrum law. That's what I'm saying is that like, that's how come everyone hates it. Who are backs forwards actually don't, don't dislike it. Most forward coaches I know actually like, like the law. Um, and me included. And, uh, <laughs> no, and no, I, but, I just don't know. Every backs way. coach I know is like, this is the stupidest law I've ever seen in my life because the tackle line and the game line are at the 10. So you, you attack there. That's where you go because it's easy to get to the tackle line. It's easy it's to get to the game, game line. line. It's a guaranteed game yeah, line. Yeah, I know. And that's, and that's why. And, and, and as you said, car wreck rugby. And, uh, it's actually a good term. All right, gentlemen, we have gone way over time today, but why not? We had the sevens to talk about, and we had the Eagles coach, Eddie O'Sullivan, as well, who we love uh, chatting to. And, uh, Eddie, it'd be great if you just pop back in you know, every every month or so to keep us updated. Anytime you want me, give me a call. I'm happy to do it. I enjoy the chat. A uh, quick one. Oh, wait, uh, we got we got to talk about one real quick thing. Yeah, can I get in first? Oh, yeah, of course. Can I ask you? What did you think about Ireland, France? Sorry, Eddie. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, kind of disappointed and, and shocked, really, that I really, really thought that this was our best chance, you know. We had a, a cracking good team. They were on a roll, and I just couldn't believe it. It just went so pear-shaped so quickly, you know. Um, you know, there's no complaints. We're well beaten off the park. And, and I've been to Paris. It's, it's one of the toughest places in the world to play. I've been, I've been to Auckland. I've been to Hamilton. I've been to Dunedin. You know, I've been to... To Sydney, Paris. I've been around the block here. I've been to Bloemfontein, which is not a barrel of laughs either. But I got to tell you, Paris is one of the toughest places to play in. But I really thought this Irish team at the moment, the, the profile of the team, you know, the way they were firing. And I, and I know they didn't play that well against Italy, but that's the first game in a championship. And Italy are tough to play a first day out. But I really did believe they were going to do it. And it's a bit of a shock to everybody. And I guess what it does now is it does, it means the next game against England is, is, is going to be, is going to define their season really at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. And Again, you know, England didn't go that well, but I can tell you, England and Twickenham are, are are a real bag of spanners to beat. You know, I mean, I've had success there a couple of times, 2004 and six, and we played really well in those games. We still ended up only winning by one score, so that game's going to be a real dog fight because it also makes or breaks Martin Johnson's season. I think, you know, um, so I mean, it's 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 time to circle the wagons for Ireland. We got two weeks to do it, but um. Pretty confident they're, they're a good bunch of guys, but I, I know they're going to be licking their wounds for a while after this one. That This was a tough one to swallow. So we thank Eddie O'Sullivan for joining us today. Uh, pleasure. Great to see you got over Vegas. Great to see you got to Vegas. And uh, we look forward to... Not quite to... over, Chester, but I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> and good luck with getting um, getting more of uh, America's players uh, involved with uh, with elite teams. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks, Gerald. There he is, Eddie Eddie O'Sullivan. I was going to say Eddie Jones. Sorry, Eddie. <laughs> Eddie O'Sullivan. I worked with him too long. Uh, Bruce McLean, final word before we go. If you're still with us, we love you. This is the longest podcast ever. But it was worth it. <laughs> yes, right. it was. <laughs> All right. We'll be back next week with another bumper show. This is Rugger Matrix 10. We're in the double figures. Bring on 11 next week.